0: Happy New Year, and welcome to the first 2022 episode of Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips. I hope you're doing well, and I'm feeling pretty hopeful as we start this new year. And unlike a lot of people on my Facebook feed, apparently, I did not hate 2021. On the personal front, my wife Susan marked her five-year milestone from her cancer diagnosis, And I submitted the manuscript for my second book, How We Win the Civil War. And it's because I spent a year putting this current moment in historical context for the book that I have so much appreciation for what happened politically last year. And today is the perfect day to reflect on where we've come from and where we're going, because this episode will air on January 6th, which is the one year anniversary of the insurrection on the Capitol. And to be clear, that insurrection was absolutely an attempted coup in the United States of America. And then the violent attack was followed by the majority of Republicans voting to throw out the votes of the American people who had elected Joe Biden president. And refusing to accept election results is the conduct of dictators, their enablers, and it is a core definitional element of fascism. The dictionary defines fascism as a political movement that exalts nation and often race above the individual And that stands for a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader. And that is what was at stake on January 6th of last year. But they failed in their coup attempt. And that's why I feel good about 2021. We ousted a white nationalist president from the White House. And then not only that, in the day before the coup, I'm sure contributing to the anger of the people there, the voters of Georgia, home of Martin Luther King, whose birthday we'll celebrate in a couple of weeks, Those voters, led by African-Americans, Latinos, and Asian-Americans, and organized by the movement that Stacey Abrams has helped to strengthen and build over the past decade, flipped that state's two U.S. Senate seats and handed control of the U.S. Congress to Democrats. And then once that took place, with Democrats in control of all branches of government, many significant and important things happened last year, sadly kept too quiet by the Biden administration, including passing $3 trillion in public investments, addressing critical public health and economic equity challenges. So yeah, I feel good about 2021 and I feel hopeful about 2022, even though we have enormous challenges ahead of us. And we're going to get into all of that in today's episode as we pause to reflect, look back at the year that was, and then look ahead at where we go from here. And for that conversation, I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang, back from her international adventures in the wilds of Canada, where her in-laws reside. And we're also joined by the Democracy in Color staff writer, Fola Onifade, making her second appearance on this side of the microphone. Fola is the backbone of every episode, helping us focus our thinking and organize our thoughts, and we're thrilled that you'll get to hear from her directly as well today. So Happy New Year, Charlene Fola. How are you both? How was your break, and how are you guys feeling heading into 2022?
1: Hey, Steve. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. I'm still having such a good feeling about having spent some time with my in-laws in Canada. We had, had to miss Christmas and New Year's, the holiday season last winter because of COVID, and this year we squeaked by, <laughs> we decided to go, and the restrictions were um, you know, a lot uh, easier to deal with, so we, we went for it, and we had just a family, we didn't see anybody else, spent a lot of time in their cozy house, and also a lot of fun in the snow, we were lucky this year, we got a lot of snow, and then we left right before a big snowstorm, so... <laughs>
0: And was, I hope um, your mother-in-law appreciates <laughs> that I did not pull you into manic book writing and ruining yet another Christmas vacation.
1: <laughs> it wasn't manic book writing, but there was a, there was definitely we are still, we're still chipping away at it. But yes, she does definitely appreciate it. I was able to spend a lot more time this time, in which we weren't on full deadline, trying to get a big lift on in another manuscript during the holiday season. And I think with what we've all gone through over the you know, since 2020, just getting time with family who live far away is I appreciate it a lot more than I used to. And there were lots of movie watching and hot cocoa and popcorn and, you know, just quiet time. And I I am just really thankful. How about you, Fola?
2: Yeah, I also had a very quiet holiday, um, but it was really nice. I'm in New Jersey with my family, where they all live, and it was quiet. Still here, we got like a little snow flurry, and that quickly melted away. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but I watched a lot of um, Insecure and just catching up on shows that, that I love. So, a uh, good holiday. I'm excited for 2022. Excited to be on the first episode of the year, so um, thank you for having me.
1: We're so glad you're here. And yes. shout out to Jersey. Oh, you man. and I are Jersey girls. Yes, New Jersey is definitely
0: in the <laughs> house hi. for this episode. I have
1: not been to Jersey in a long time. <laughs> My parents are, you know, still wanting us to stay safe over here and waiting for them to feel comfortable for us to visit them. So give it a big hug and have
2: some good pizza for me. <laughs> yeah. I had some New York pizza a couple mm. ago. Yeah, missed
0: that. (laughs) There's this line in uh, Sopranos where the daughter is in college and she's trying to explain to Tony Soprano, she says, the state is oppressing the individual. And then Tony Soprano goes, New Jersey? Right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) A small trivia, a friend of a friend's parents' house was rented to film (laughs) in the Sopranos. It was one of those gigantic homes. I think it might have been their home. You know, the the main family's home. Mm Mm-hmm so my jersey roots are quite deep Uh, so just pivoting to what we're going to talk about mainly today uh you know i keep thinking it's it's a new year i do wish that we could have like this super light first episode but there is something really important that um i know we all want to talk about it and it just happens that when this episode is coming out it's the one year anniversary of the capitol hill insurrection as you mentioned steve and again, that took place on January 6th, 2021, exactly a year ago from this day, again, the day when this episode is being released. And so what I'd really love for us to do is just share our thoughts on the fact that it's been a year that this violent attempted coup happened. It will always be something that we remember as we begin a year because it, it was you know, the first week and it was a p- pivotal moment in our nation's history. I know that there's certainly a part of it country that wants to pretend like it didn't happen or you know, dismiss it and sort of either sweep it under the rug or just say, oh, that you know, was just a bunch of rabble rises. It was, it was just not. a
0: tour of the capitals, what yeah. some of them are saying.
1: Yeah, just a few, you know, troublemakers, as, mm. suppo- as opposed to really, I think, what I'm interested in doing is year upon year. You really reflect and think about like the meaning of it. And uh, for me, I'm still processing it. Like, I think a lot of people in this country are, and a lot of political analysts are, still trying to look at what are the ramifications, what is the right takeaways. So I wanted to just go around and have us share some of our personal feelings and thinking about this particular anniversary of the insurrection one year later, because it is a new year and we are at the beginning of a full-on election year. This is a midterm cycle. We're going to have midterm elections in the fall. How are both of you sitting with this? Uh, And Fola, I thought I'd have you start first.
2: Yeah, well just thinking back to, to last year when this all happened uh, as a proper young millennial, or as Olivia, our producer likes to say, I'm a Gen Z cusp. Um, I'm really. Proud of um, she just
1: likes to say that so she can feel like an, another elder in the room, even though she's only a little
2: bit older than
0: you. Oh, Olivia Olivia's an old soul though. So. Yeah,
2: I don't have cable, but that, that day I think whenever the news broke I believe it was CNN they were streaming free and my partner and I were just watching like in horror and shock the same scenes of like windows being broken and just mm-hmm. like, just it was extremely terrifying and almost kind of like surreal like is this really happening here
1: exactly
2: there? Um, And I just remember by the end of the day, feeling so tense because we just, we were watching the same thing over and over again. Mm. Um, And a few weeks later, I had read an article in The Lily about women of color lawmakers who were in the Capitol at the time. And many of them felt uniquely targeted during that, that riot because of their gender and race. They're already, you know, targeted on a normal day, on a good day. Yeah. I could only imagine what what that must have felt like for them during that time and you know a year out now we're facing a new variant um we're in the third year of the pandemic and i think a lot about steve's framing of the civil war that we're in right now and the fact that the seven-day average deaths from covid as of december 29th is 1100 that was the latest from the cdc Over 800,000 people have died in the US and a disproportionate amount of those people are people of color. And I think about those numbers as like, those are war numbers and things didn't have to be this way. The former Trump administration sowed seeds of doubt at the start of the pandemic. And I don't think that damage has been successfully reversed yet. And I think it was that same doubt that kind of was spanned into distrust of the 2020 elections, which led to the attack on the Capitol. So to me, these things are really related. And in the middle of a global pandemic, with this burgeoning war against white nationalism, millions of people still came out and voted and still helped Democrats win the White House and the Senate. So as we're in this election year now, and we're talking about voting rights access that's being diminished across the country, I feel like the best way to commemorate or to honor the the tragedy that we've lived through as a country would be to take some bold, decisive action to not just hold Trump accountable, but to protect democracy. Because as we all know, the people who are most affected by lack of access to the ballot will be people of color and marginalized people. So that's really what's coming up for me around this time right now is I would love you know, some real real action taken to protect democracy.
1: Absolutely. And thank you. You've just put all of that, you know, so well, this, you know, point about democracy being at risk They I just read an article in Vox and I'm sorry, I didn't take the notes to get the exact title and author's name, but we'll put it in the show notes. The, it opens with this line essentially saying there is no modern democracy right now that is as at risk of being toppled and dismantled and, and coming apart as the American democracy, and it really just it just really shook me because. And I think a lot of even those in, who are Democrats and progressives, I feel like maybe it's because of also pandemic life that people have almost I don't know forgotten about the insurrection in Trump years, or the, you know people just got really fatigued and they they don't really want to think about how, what continues to be at stake. But when I read that article and that opening line, that it is a continued reality that there's no guarantee that this center will hold that this, um, you know, democracy will last. It was some really just a continued reminder to me that we just need to keep sounding that bell and reminding people and have that wake up call happen that we just can't be complacent. Just For me, just jogging my memory, thinking about that moment when I learned about the insurrection, there was this great irony in the situation I was in. We had just finished, I know all of you will remember, we just finished recording that morning an episode essentially celebrating the two seats. A Senate seats in Georgia had flipped and, of course, giving so much credit to Stacey Abrams and celebrating her brilliance we were just all high. I know I was high. I was still probably writing. I had not slept that much, you know, just uh, so excited and following the news and waking up early to see the latest news reports and seeing all the posts on social media about Stacy and pictures. And so right after the recording, I actually quickly went to check my phone because I wanted to see more celebration about Stacy. I was like, Oh, maybe I'll post something. I want to see what's the latest. And instead I just saw the live footage and, I was completely, uh, like you said, like I was in shock, stunned in disbelief at what I was witnessing, which was the rioters smashing windows, Congress people barricading their doors and hiding and just the complete chaos of it all. But also what felt like I kept saying, how is this being allowed to happen? Like I I even had this underneath feeling of this feels coordinated. And why am I seeing that? It's so easy for, uh, by the way, predominantly white people charging past police officers charging past barricades, getting all the way inside the Capitol and walking the halls like they, they quote unquote own the place. Right. And I remember thinking, okay, what, what if every one of these people that I'm seeing as white was a person of color? And for sure, what if every single one of them was a African-American? Like, this is not a coincidence that there is this sort of double standard, like why there's so many white people being able to attack the Capitol yep. like this and get this far down. Uh, And inside the building when it's supposed to be impenetrable.
0: Yeah, no, I have a similar reaction, right? And I probably watch, you know, too much television in terms of these, there was a show 24 and all these things where the the White House is under attack and everybody's responding. And now my thing was like, oh, it's interesting because I think the reaction is also, it it, it reveals a fundamental for all of our cynicism, belief in democracy is that you shouldn't be able yeah. to attack the Capitol and yeah. that that shouldn't be able to happen, right? And yeah. so it's like, well, where are the police? Where is the military? And mm-hmm. can, any, can anyone just walk into the Capitol where all of the elected officials and the vice president is without being stopped, not just without being stopped, that's like the first piece, but nobody coming to the rescue.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that's where
0: you get to this coordinated piece, right? Mm-hmm. So I think this may actually come out with some of the investigations that uh, Congress is doing about what actually happened. Is it's pretty, well? Two things happened actually. One thing, of this has all been fully connected the dots. But Trump actually replaced the head of the Pentagon after the November election, and he kind of put like his own people over there. And so then on Insurrection Day, the military did not come, and they're sitting mm. there saying, "Let that," you know. So that that story may really well be told. So. That was why I can go to my my big reaction. Now, Dan, I was just thinking when you know Follow was mentioning about the women of color who were particularly, you know, targeted in some of the, you know, the the, the fundamental racial dynamics of this, right? Is that you had you had people carrying the Confederate flag, wearing t-shirts saying MAGA Civil War, January 6th, 2021. So let's not lose sight of that. But the biggest hero from a law enforcement standpoint was the black man, Eugene Goodman. Yeah. Right, yep. who lured the crowd away from the uh, chamber where all the the Congress people were, which also gets back to I hadn't even thought about this until when um, Col Hannah Jones did the 1619 project, where she leads it by talking about how African Americans are actually the most patriotic people there are. Yeah, and so who was it who saved our Congress? But it was you know a black man.
1: That image of him, I remember. I think I was watching that live, but I've since rewatched the footage of how calm. He stayed and how and he was putting himself in front of the crowd and leading them right
0: to yeah, a he, different he, direction. He baited them yeah, by trying to get himself. them to come after him and it, it led them the opposite direction of the hallway from where the, the members of Congress were gathered.
1: And I do want to say, knowing now what we do about how many of the insurrectionists were armed and trained, highly trained. You know, we had uh, different people from military and law enforcement background who were there as participants. I, I do try to remember how fortunate that the death toll was not higher, but I try to keep in mind and still feel so much sadness for the families of those who were lost, who lost their lives. Uh, I think about five people who died directly as a result of that day's violence. But I also keep in mind that there were four officers who responded to the Capitol that day, who were you know, working that day on duty, And subsequently, did die by suicide, which uh, is no coincidence. Just the trauma that they experienced, and um, I just feel you know that is we need to all, whenever we remember this day, remember all of those
0: people. Yeah, I mean that's when people. That's the thing about it can't be minimized to a you know a capital tour, right? This was a this was a violent attack on the United States Capitol, and that is the Mm -hmm. kind of thing that happens when a country is engaged in a civil war.
1: And that's a good transition, speaking of civil war, because I want to just let all the listeners know about, you know, give them an update on, Steve, your manuscript for your upcoming book that's coming out this year and how it relates to the current political moment. Again, Steve, you've been working on your new book titled How We Win the Civil War. And while we don't have a firm date yet, and when we do, we'll definitely let our listeners know. But the book is definitely coming out this year, and we're really excited. The, um, You know, Steve, you often talk about how when you first started thinking about what you wanted to write for your second book, that you thought about this framing of a civil war, but more as a metaphorical framing. Right. And again, this was what, now three years ago, I'm losing track of time. Was this about three years ago when you started working on it? It
0: was two years, but I don't. I did, a, I did a call with my nephew over the holiday, and I was all like, so you're a sophomore in college? He's like, no, I'm a junior. I'm like, where the hell yeah. did that happen? Well, that's right? what I mean.
1: There's got to be some sort of name for it, like pandemic time, where all of us are, we kind of lose track of the years because they're you know, a weird, weird time. Um, but I wanted to ask you if you can just share with us an update. And also just sort of what you're thinking about right now in terms of the book, what you've learned over the past two plus years working on the book, and especially in the context of in this first anniversary of the attempted coup.
0: Yeah, well, uh, uh, to be accurate, uh, we are working on the book that Microsoft Word Review Function has a feature which counts the number of changes and so your edited changes from September were about 300 per um chapter the next, now <laughs> sorry we're to,
1: sorry not sorry <laughs>
0: we're going through the uh, edits from the publisher who gave us very you know encouraging positive feedback and i like open up that little you know box in there and i'm like oh it's only 20 some changes that's way fewer than charlene's number of changes it's because
1: so. i gave you 300 changes to me
0: yes that. no i do think we took it to another level and it was a very um I yeah, think I put this on Facebook. It was almost like almost like spiritual experience of connecting with and communing with and trying to channel and honor writers who've gone before, leaders and organizers, people who fought this struggle, trying to weave in the words of prior writers, like putting W. E. B. Du Bois in and Isabel Wilkerson's cast, and then the people who fought these fights. And so, you know, getting getting up at 5.30 and it's dark and really trying to focus in. But it really was a very powerful experience, particularly those you know, three weeks where you wrapped it up in September. So I do think it's very on point. Like I say, we started out as a metaphor for um, the beginning of the Civil War and then people carrying the Confederate flag stormed the Capitol. I'm like, well, it's no longer a metaphor. So I think you know, we'll, we'll share more as we go forward. But I do think in terms of this particular moment, there's kind of like three major takeaways that are kind of top of mind to me. Right. So, and I think that are important to understanding where we're at and where we're going, right? So one, that none of this is new. Two, the Confederates never stopped fighting. And that's the whole first part of the book. The second part is how we actually win, looking at the states we've made success, Georgia and Arizona and Virginia, other others. And the third uh, takeaway I have is that this is tied to something about where we've had success, is that we are now the majority. And we should win this war. And we are winning it when we fight properly. And those are the case studies that we lay out in the second in the second part of the book. So in terms of none of this being new, just like just I think a, a couple facts that if like kind of stood out that illustrate or dramatize this reality, right? And it's funny because you know I think I generally had some fair amount of knowledge about US history, but when you really dig into it, it's like really quite eye-opening, right? So the Civil War itself was the result of refusal to accept election results. And so we coming out of a situation 2020 where Trump and his supporters refused to accept their election results and went through all of this effort to culminate in the attack on the Capitol, it's not that different than what happened in 1860, right? So the slaveholding states refused to accept the results. Just three days after the election, the South Carolina legislature convened to vote on a measure titled resolution to call the election of abraham lincoln as u.s president a hostile act Mm. and so that's three days later and so then that in the weeks that followed that you then had multiple states actually voting to succeed from the government i kind of wonder if trump had called for states to succeed how that would have played itself out right in last uh, december and so they this was like just weeks after the election and what led up to the whole civil war and that it's Number of states voted in December to succeed and uh, in Gone with the Wind, Margaret Mitchell, who's the author of Gone with the Wind, she actually has this line of dialogue in there about... Fortunately, Georgia decided to wait till after Christmas to succeed, because otherwise it would have ruined the holidays, right? So right. it's just like because <laughs> like, that's
1: that's what's important.
0: Exactly, but how people actually look at all this stuff. And I think the other part of this too is that there wasn't a, a organized plan to assassinate Lincoln before he took office. There's a whole book called The Baltimore Plot. And then while he was en route from Illinois to D.C., they're going to try to assassinate him. And so this whole reality of the unwilling and you see it now on television, these reporters keep trying to ask these different Republicans, do you think Biden was elected legitimately? And people, a lot of these Republicans won't say the most of them probably won't say that he that he was. So it's very much the same mindset and the very same mold of refusing to participate in and agree that this is a democracy and that we have results. and We're going to buy better results. That's the the behavior mindset that led to the original Civil War. So that's I think one major takeaway. None of this is new. Then the other piece, I think the major thing which is most particularly relevant, I think, in terms of heading into twenty twenty two, looking at all these battles in you know in Congress and in the states, so voting rights piece, is that they never stopped fighting, and that's something I think a lot of Democrats. I think frankly even biden doesn't want to believe this I mean, clearly Manchin and clearly mansion and cinema don't believe that the other side is is fighting at this level but it's critical to appreciate the nature of the fight and how and the unrelentingness of it right so i mean one the one thing that's most fascinating to me is how little actual understanding we have about lincoln's assassination everybody knows lincoln was assassinated you know jokes about you know mrs lincoln how was the play and whatnot so it's part of our culture that lincoln was assassinated the first president ever assassinated but very few people realize. When and why? And I didn't realize, I started writing the book, right? Just five days after the Confederate surrendered, Lincoln was assassinated. And shortly, a couple days before that, uh, John Wills Booth, right, heard Lincoln at the, he went to the White House, Lincoln came out of the White House, and like on the whatever steps there, gave a speech to the public about where we go from here, et cetera. And he was talking about, in a limited extension of the franchise to some Black folks being able to vote. Right, so John Willis Booth is in that audience, turns to a friend and says, that means nigger citizenship. Mm. That is the last speech he will ever make. And two days later, he went into the Forest Theater and shot Lincoln in the back of the head. So that's not surrendering in terms of the Civil War, right? So you take that and then you just carry it all the way through. And that's what we go through in the book. It's just all the way up to you know, the Klan was created in Christmas of 60, 1965 by ex-Confederates. The whole history of lynching that, you know, where the whole world really was galvanized and traumatized by what happened to George Floyd, you know, because it was caught on on, on video, Mm -hmm. all those marches, all those protests, all those different changes, there were two lynchings every single week in this country for 33 years. So it'd be Mm -hmm. like a George Floyd, two George Floyd murders every week for 33 years designed to stop people from voting, right? So you have the situation that in, over the course of that time, Mississippi went from having sixty seven percent of African-Americans registered to vote. By 1955, it was four percent. So that history of terror is a, another component. of They've never actually stopped fighting. And then what we're seeing now is this whole thing, all these laws that they're passing to be able to, again, restrict the vote. And then people think this stuff is new, but we used to have, and the Supreme Court basically affirmed white primaries. And they could say, oh yeah, only white people can vote in this primary. And this was like legal for like 30 years within the country on the theory that like, well, if everybody can vote in the general election, then it's not racially discriminatory and the, the primaries are not government entities, but the South was a one party state. So that's, what we went through that whole piece. So this level of voter suppression is ongoing and tied to this whole piece about never actually giving an itch. So uh, I think looking at things in that context helps us appreciate the nature of the fight that we're in at this moment.
1: And that continual thread, that the thread that runs through our history of the conflict between the, those working very hard to preserve white supremacy and this white-dominated power, and the other side, which is you know you know more interested in a multiracial democracy and and fights for understanding the humanity of people of color and and sees them as deserving of equal rights, if not. Total equal rights, you know. Throughout history, there were, you know, just at least more rights, increased rights, and and how much of it hinges on the the, the voting rights, right? Who gets yep. to vote, and that we're, you know, here again. So having said that, you say it's continuing. I'm reading articles that it's just the beginning. That something like January 6 could happen again. What are our reasons for? Being optimistic, I know a lot of times you talk and you say, well, you still feel optimistic. And your book, you know, offers hope and optimism. So, what are some reasons why we should feel optimistic if this is something, a pattern that has not yet stopped?
0: Well, it would not be a conversation with or podcast with Steve Phillips without a Jesse Jackson reference. So, yes. I would like Jack- say
1: it could be a drinking game. Yes. With every I- podcast episode, every time you message Jesse or Stacey, we drink.
0: We brought Jesse out to speak at, at um, a rally in Sacramento, California at the state capitol in like 1987. And we're, and he had like been out on the West Coast and he flew back east and his travel schedule was incredibly hectic. And that someone's like, Jesse, you must be so tired. You're traveling all over the country. Jesse says, beats picking cotton. Right. And so fundamentally, we won the Civil War and ended slavery. And so that, and that was not a given. And mm-hmm. so that's, a, but what that reflects, which is why the core element of, I think why we should all be optimistic is that the Confederates and even the Confederate supporters are not the majority of people and that it's alarming and shocking and horrifying how many of these folks voted for Trump after all of his, you know, naked racism and incompetence, but he's still lost. And so it's far more than we would like to admit, but it is a minority and that's the fundamental optimist and that's the fundamental reality as we head into 2022 that there is a new american majority the overwhelming majority of people of color the meaningful minority of whites is a majority of the voters a majority of the people elected a black president twice ousted a white nationalist flipped the two senate seats in georgia and flipped the united states congress and then as we head into 2022 that majority continues to grow as we saw in the latest census data right that we put in brown as the new white every single day seven thousand people of color added to the population versus one thousand whites so the the tide is in our direction and then we're starting to see the results in arizona we saw it in georgia and as you look at 2022 and all these different races and the senate races in uh uh, arizona florida north carolina wisconsin pennsylvania you have strong candidates of color running you have multiracial coalitions um, yes, Texas is in that mix and it should be in play. We did Peace in the nation around that. So all of this is trending in our direction. As you know, Shirley, when we did the first book, we made the argument around there's a new American majority. If we organize and we turn out, we will actually win. Stacey Abrams did that work. Stacey Abrams got us connected to Raphael Warnock five years ago to give us a blurb for the book.
1: First one to give us a blurb.
0: Yeah. and With Reverend it, Warnock. Exactly. And so that, not just theory, that analysis is being proven. And it was proven in 2020, it was proven in Georgia, and that's continuing to trend in our direction. If we lean into it, if we embrace it, if we follow the leadership of you know, visionary people of color in general, people like Stacey Abrams in particular, we can and should win and continue to expand our majorities in 2022 and beyond.
1: Yeah. And I, I just want to say that I think I may have plied or, or talked about it when I was talking about what it was like for me to watch the, you know, the live coverage of the insurrection. I remember on top of feeling, you know, the, the, the shock and the anger and the grief and and the terror, I was just really, if I may say so, just pissed, (laughs) pissed off that I was wanting to celebrate and have the whole world and social media have like five more days, at least if not five weeks more of celebrating Stacey Abrams and her brilliance and her leadership. Uh, I had just been having so much fun, you know, reading all the shout outs to her on Twitter, it, you know, because all of us in Democracy Color have known about her for many years. One of our um, first
0: podcast guests.
1: Yeah. And I remember, um, you know, you again, Steve and Susan have been early mentors and supporters of her. So I knew her before a lot of my friends did. But now suddenly everybody was like her best friend. Like, everybody's right. like, oh, yeah, I know Stacey or I've known of her brilliance. And I remember that great meme where she was one of the Game of Thrones characters that was going around, <laughs> right, kind of like, right. you know, just like, kind of like, how do you like me now? Or you can thank me now. I was looking forward to many, many more days of that. And it was just stopped cold in its tracks because of the insurrectionists and the, the coverage of it. And it just made me feel like, you know, here we go again. It's like there's an example of woman of color, a black woman who deserves so much credit and and her time. Is now and it's just the thunder's being stolen. Yeah. So you know, I'm and all and even afterwards, the the fact that Georgia was flipped, you know, the two Senate seats were flipped, much uh, thanks to her and many Black women's leadership and powerful organizing in the South. That credit, like, is not still given to them. That the Democratic Party and consultants do not look at what she and other Black women did. To get those wins and say that there's our roadmap. So my next question I wanted to ask Fola, this year 2022, I'm reading some articles about how this is going to be another historic year for Black women in politics. There are going to be a number of historical races and possible historic wins. For example, I don't even want to say if, but when Stacy wins her gubernatorial race in Georgia, she would become the first Black woman governor in U.S. history. And then we have Sherry Beasley running for U.S. Senate in North Carolina, Val Demings is running for U.S. Senate in Florida, and then a number of also amazing black women candidates running for different seats across the country. So given in that context, at the start of this year, and also with the backdrop of the insurrection anniversary, I'm just wondering what's on your mind as as a young black woman who, what did you say, and a, a proper millennial
0: no, a cusp. Somewhere there was like a cusp <laughs> word there.
2: A Gen Z cusp. All the Gen Zers are probably rolling their eyes. My brother is going to be like, you're not a Gen Zer. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I actually, Stacey Abrams, she was doing a sort of like a tour around the country and she stopped in Charlotte in November at the Ovens Auditorium, which is like next to the Bojangles Coliseum on the East side of Charlotte, which I just moved to about a year ago. And something I love about that side of town is just how full of diversity is. There's Mexican food, Peruvian food, Middle Eastern food, there's Jamaican food, there's just everything. And it. it reminds wow. me where where I grew up here in, in New Jersey. And so it meant something to me that, you know, she was speaking on that side of town because, mm. you know, even as we talk about all the time, just the variety of culture that is on that side of town and that represents the country and where the country is going to that that was that felt significant to me and you know we were waiting for her to come out and I think up until that moment Stacey Abrams had kind of been this larger than life person in my like in my mind's eye and there's this image of her on the cover of Marie Claire I think it came out sometime last year where she looks so regal and powerful she has on like, this military style coat and she's like looking down from the clouds and that's kind of like how I picture her in my mind and when she walked out on the stage, I felt like I recognized her in a different way. Um, she reminded me of Black women I know who are pillars in their community, in their churches, in their organizations. And I felt like, <laughs> I, felt like I, I know her. I know I yeah. her, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in the answers that she was giving when she was talking, she was just so practical and methodical in the way that she thinks about the world. And she had said something, you know, about the work she was doing with voting rights and voting access, that it's really the most fundamental element of democracy. And so like we we can't have a democracy without everyone having a chance to have their voice heard. So it was the most practical thing she could do. And it just, it like made It's like I knew that, but it made so much sense. And there's this quote in the Paris Review by Claudia Rankine. She's the author of Citizen, An American Lyric. And she says, Black women are nothing if not pragmatic because their whole existence in this country has been about negotiating a life without the fantasy of external support. And so that's kind of how mm. I um, or think about all the work that Stacey Abrams and, as you mentioned, Charlene, and all the other Black women and women of color in Georgia who, without support, as we've talked about frequently in the newsletter, on this podcast, no one was paying attention to Georgia. And yet, Georgia is the reason that we even have the Senate today to talk about. And because it's kind of like, well, if no one's going to do the work, I guess we will to protect democracy and you know, now, as you're saying, Charlene, everyone's like, oh, Stacey Abrams, she's so brilliant. And she's visible along with other black women that helped bring about this victory for Democrats. But something that's important to me, and I think for a lot of black women is that the greater public visibility that black women are receiving now needs to be backed up with like, authority and, like, decision-making capabilities being handed to Black women. So mm-hmm. it's not enough to just, like, pat on the back, thanks so much for saving our democracy, but also, like you said, how did you do this? Like, how can we learn from you? How can we support you and others like you who are doing this work? And so, you know, talking about North Carolina, I think it's notable that the state senator, Jeff Jackson, who is also running to be Democratic candidate, He dropped out and immediately backed Sherry Beasley, who was the first black woman to be chief justice of North Carolina Supreme court. She won her election, um, and lost this last one by just 400, 401 votes, I think.
0: Out of 5 million.
2: Yeah. You know, instead of running negative ads about her, he supported her. And to me, that is the right direction in that.
1: That's right. (laughs) She's
2: proven that she can win and that she can get that support. And so I think that going into 2022, I want to see action behind the praise. Yep. So it's not enough to just be on the cover of magazines. Now it's also mm. to to like, support women, support Black women, and to lift them up and to trust them to do the work because they've been doing it.
0: Yeah. And then those of us have been on this journey with Stacey knew that she was not always as revered. She all, you were talking, talking about uh, uh, the North Carolina race, right? The former governor, Roy Barnes, recruited a white woman, Stacey Evans, to run so Stacey had to run in a primary in 2018 against somebody else, right? Because it, it's, it's an unusual situation where a person, uh, you know, a white candidate will step aside and actually back the uh, actually back the black candidate. Uh, and I did want to, uh, I thought it crossed my mind. I just wanted to just also shout out in reference back to our prior podcast in terms of the larger cast of... Leadership within Georgia, right? So Nikema Williams was on the pod, right? She's a congresswoman now, she's the Georgia D- Democratic Party chair, and Seyoufat ran. Uh, she was also on the pod earlier, and she ran New Georgia Project. So all of the, those leaders were part of actually putting together the coalition that actually moved this whole piece forward. It it struck me as you were talking, Paulo, about well, two things. I like think one is just the resonance of uh, Stacey and her like authenticity, but also. You actually alluded to this when, when you know, Tashara Jones got elected mayor, just in terms of it's this thing about seeing somebody who looks like you and the, and who is comfortable who they are. So the, 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 the authenticity of that and the power of that tied to people who are in society who don't usually get to be in those positions and aren't usually seen in those positions. And so that's some of the strategic significance of Black women in particular, right? So it's easy to narrow it down. It's like, well, there's a subset of black people. And it's a subset of women. And so it's a smaller grouping of people. But in actuality, black women have lived and knowledge and experience of being black and of being a woman. So the actual the mm-hmm. range of insight is much greater than is actually appreciated. But in terms of this leadership piece, right? So one of the one of the uh, writers that I've most connected with in writing the book, is Isabel Wilkerson, in her book, Cast, where she talks about and illuminates this role around who gets to play what roles, right? She has a whole chapter in a book called A Long-Running Play in the Emergence of Cast in America, right? it says everyone knows who is at center stage, who the hero is, right? And mm. so that is how things have played themselves out in politics, right? Who gets to be the data genius, right? It's a young white guy like, you know, David Shore or Ezra Klein. Who's the entrepreneur it's either two guys in a garage or four guys uh, white guys in that harvard room it's not you don't see a vietnamese woman you don't see a mexican-american woman like tram win and michelle Tremillo, who built organizations from scratch into multi-million dollar electoral powerhouses they're entrepreneurs and you certainly don't see people running states as people who look like Stacey Abrams. That role is not reserved for people who look like a dark-skinned Black woman like Stacey. And so that's going to be a lot of what plays itself out in 2022. We have the opportunity, I think, to resonate with and follow and back those types of leaders, Val Deming, Sherry Beasley, Stacey, the other people we had talked about. But I want to actually ask you for a little bit about, somewhat bro- more broadly, because this plays itself out in, in uh, art and culture as well. Mm-hmm. right? You saw a lot of it in... Um, the backlash against uh when they were proposing Idris Elba to play James Bond. Mm-hmm. It's like that role's not supposed to be played by somebody who looks like Idris Elba. Right? I'm like,
1: oh I don't want it. Yes. <laughs> like, I was not one of the protesters. I'm like,
0: so God. my Facebook feed and social media was flooded with the people commenting on the end of the show insecure mm-hmm. um from uh you know the who's starring Isa Ray stanford chocolate cardinals a grouping of black uh, stanford people shout out and she actually started out just with her own youtube show an right? awkward black girl and kind of built it up into this. speed and that she kind of became broke through and at the one of the award ceremonies right and they're just like who are you rooting for just, i'm rooting for everybody black right mm. and so i know Phil, you said you're a fan of the show but i think it's also illustrative of the cultural and artistic situation we're in right now so I was wondering if you could um, just talk a little bit about how it lands with you and why you think that it's it's significant in this context of who gets represented and who gets portrayed.
2: Yeah, I am a huge fan. Um, I caught the final episode of the series a few days after it aired. So I had to like dodge spoilers on Twitter mm-hmm. and Instagram, like nobody cares if you're not watching it immediately when it comes yes, out. Yes,
0: I feel you on that.
2: <laughs> but it was... It was so great. It was sad to see it end, but it's on HBO Max. I've restarted it already, and I'm currently on season two. And Insecure aired the fall after I graduated from college, so five years ago. Um, and it was on the heels of like Shonda Rhimes's Thank God It's Thursday lineup of Grey's Anatomy, then Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder. And I remember in college, all my friends and I, we would all like get together and watch all of these shows and just see like diversity and the cast and these Black women who were like leading roles. And so when Insecure came around, we were primed already for such great TV, but it was different in that it was a woman on the cusp of her thirties who was still figuring out her life. Um, She was making mistakes. It was imperfect. She was super awkward that it was sometimes like it hurt to watch, but it was, you could relate with her. And I think that was the biggest part of it. And you mentioned this Steve too, like she was a dark skinned woman and the lighting, that's something people don't always talk about, but like the way her skin would be lit on camera, just it, made you look at her and think like, oh, wow, she's beautiful. And like, think about yourself as beautiful, which mm. is a good thing, um, especially dark-skinned girls often feel. And I meant to allude to this earlier. There's an article by Yvette Dion, who used to be the former editor-in-chief of Bitch Magazine, but her article is in The Undefeated, where she talks about Black women invisibility visibility and being not just in front of the screen on cameras, but also now being behind the scenes, um, Issa Rae, is the writer, director, and the star of Insecure. And in this series finale, they also released a documentary called Insecure The End. And in the documentary, they talk about all the different Black writers, directors, fashion designers, even like drivers, union drivers, that they were able to hire to put this show together and how many other Black people she was able to create possibility and opportunity for from this show. And when I think about, you know, representation or seeing someone who looks like you, for me, what's been coming up a lot is just how much it expands the imagination for what's possible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then it shows what how much talent is out there. Right. And people say, oh, we can't find anybody. Right. Shonda Rhimes was a unemployed script writer who was working as an office administrator. Wow. And now she's the dominant creative force in the country. She didn't get, mm-hmm. suddenly get talented. She suddenly that's got right. empowered, right?
1: Yeah. She got the opportunity. Mm-hmm.
2: And that's something you always mentioned to me too, Steve, right? Like there's there's always that like imposter syndrome and Issa Rae had a similar situation, I think, but Larry Wilmore was um, he's a staple in Hollywood and he took a chance on her and Shakira yeah. was her first, you know, show and in, in, in the documentary she talks about how many different re- rewrites they had to go through and it's Change the culture of television, and yep. um, you know everyone is going to be working up to the level of Insecure.
1: Yeah, Manful, I know you've gotten me uh, many times excited to watch Insecure, and I've checked out uh, a few episodes, and I do really like it. But I haven't made the time to watch all of them. But now, for sure, I, I feel like right after this recording, I got it binge. <laughs> <laughs> you
2: won't regret it.
0: Yeah, well, I do, and I do think you know tying it back in, right? That this is an example of the talent that is out there, and that if we will embrace and invest in that talent. What did I say? I saw, somebody, I saw the phrase someone said that people of color are over-mentored and under-invested in. And I think that that's what this art and culture piece is showing that if we're going to win politically, we've got, you know, Stacey Abrams was under-invested in until more recently. But now if we invest in her, if we invest in Val Demings, we invest in Sherry Beasley, we can actually have a very great 2022 politically. So uh, we're up against the time here, and so um, unfortunately we've got to wrap it up. Uh, I could talk about this stuff uh, for hours probably. It's quite engaging. Thank you so much, Folo, for coming out from behind the other side of the microphone and joining us for the conversation. And wish a happy new year to all of our listeners. Good to be reconnected, and we're glad to be back at it um, heading into this new year. Thank you for listening for Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyandcolor.com. And Democracy in Color is now on Instagram. Follow man's that account. You can follow us at Democracy Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by uh, Olivia Parker, with support from Charlene Chang, Bolo Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Onward into 2022. Keep the faith.